0: most original and creative talent in our business would you welcome mr orson wells ladies and gentlemen orson wells again come to call for another visit good evening this is orson wells
1: Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses.
2: Well, Jello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm joined with Terry Phillips and Vincent Longo and Catherine Fuller-Seely. We have another episode of Orson Welles' commentaries for you. Uh, This one's uh, another busy political one, and uh, let's just go into it. Uh, Vincent, what stood out for you on this one?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to purposely avoid the politics at the beginning because i think terry and kathy and everyone else are going to talk about that so it'll be a way to sort of uh, come back to that i'm actually going to talk about the final third of the broadcast which is by far the most unfocused i might even say stream of consciousness i sort of think wells not i don't know if he just didn't know where exactly where he was going but he gets he gets to some interesting points and we learned some things about wells that i didn't know and i'm not sure anybody really talks about and so um what I, the first thing that we learn is sort of we get, a, an, um, we get an idea of the extent to which of Wells' celebrity status. Several times over the last commentaries, he's mentioned where he goes after performances of uh, around the world. Again, he's in New York. He's mentioned uh, Toot Shores Bar uh, particularly many times, which for people who don't know that, um, wasn't a super fancy place itself, but it was a, a celebrity hangout known for its charismatic, and uh, heavily drinking, able to drink uh, owner. But the other places he mentions in this one that he went to were the Stork Club and El Morocco, which both of which were very high-end clubs known for celebrities and very fancy. And so, um, you know, for Wells just having sort of said like he was pondering what working class families are gonna do uh, because they can't pay their rent while he goes to these fancy clubs, I thought was like kind of strange and kind of like uh, ironic, actually. I'm not sure he realized the extent to which he was sort of saying, well, I don't identify, I'm not a working class person. In fact, I don't have to worry about that. So I sort of thought that was uh, probably wouldn't, he wouldn't have done that if he wouldn't have thought about it. But um, the other thing is, the other thing we learn is Wells' affection for sports writers. Um, hmm. Now, most people don't think of Wells knowing anything about sports and I'm not completely sure that he did um however you know everybody at this point knows boxing because boxing is the big sport joe lewis is the main um sort of sports celebrity that everybody knows so that's not surprising however the fact that he says that the greatest newspaper men of sort of uh his generation are sports writers is pretty shocking admittedly his reasons are very Wellesian, right he says um particular uh jimmy cannon he mentions a couple other ones um jimmy cannon Let's see. Does anybody remember the other one while I'm trying to find it? Oh, here we go. Um, ring Lardner and, um, what's the other one? Runyon something, uh, Damon Damon Damon, Runyon. Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, you know, he says they have a language ear. They're really poetic. If you look up their writing, it actually is very good. Uh, Admittedly though, Jimmy Canyon is the only true sports writer on there. The other ones wrote poems and plays and short stories. Um, The other thing that sort of we are the other thing that he's interested in them is sort of as uh, racial sort of progressives on racial issues. He mentioned specifically Jimmy Cannon's stance that Joe Lewis is a celebrity for all humans and not, you know, simply a a black celebrity. So, you know, we don't get it just because Wells is reading about the Yankees. You know, there's a certain interest. The weird thing, though, is Wells is not old enough to know anything about Ring Lardner. Ring Lardner died in 1933. However, he was very um, loved by modernist uh, writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald um, and others that Wells really appreciated. So likely he would have known that. He also was famous for writing about the 1919 Black Sox scandal. And so it's likely that Wells would have known that. However, the fact that he both praises Jimmy Cannon and critiques him is strange, I find. First of all, because He spends so much time saying Jimmy Canyon is is so great, but also his beginning was terrible. But I don't know if Wells realized that he also told a weird dream story that segmented into this that made very little sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he did it reflexively, like as uh, he was trying to make a joke about how ludicrous it is to talk about your strange dream. Wells is about this statue that chases him, but he never really makes that explicit. So that sort of supports my point that this is very stream of consciousness because Wells does the same thing that he critiques. And he also, you know, is sort of talking about working class issues and then going to the fanciest places.
2: And I was struck by the same thing you were, uh, Vincent, just he essentially reads this letter that is saying that she needs help. And then he sort of after that doesn't know how to help her and then just kind of goes off in a different direction. And I just thought that that was it was like it it jarred him or something even reading it that time and and just threw him off um and i think that was interesting the other thing i thought was interesting with this episode is at the very beginning i believe he says the actual date he says june 23rd i think in this episode and i don't think he's ever in any of his episodes given us the exact date he'll he'll say oh it's the week before easter or it's the week after whatever and but he doesn't often say the actual date i don't believe so i thought that was yeah
1: he does that, though, I think, because he's his thing is about counting down OPA, right? So right. he's saying it is the 23rd of June. The OPA will be done on the end of this month. So I think that's the only reason why he brings up the exact day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, what, are, what are our thoughts on it? Let's go to, I guess, let's go to Kathy. Um, see what she thought.
3: Oh, well, I... Um... I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping Terry will talk uh, more about the politics too. Um, I was really, it, it started striking me how often uh, Orson read out letters from women. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's giving the credit from the, the, the woman who was uh, the whack in the entertainment unit, this woman from the, from the wife of a veteran. Um, I, I just, I appreciate his sense of, of sort of gender equality that was very rare, uh, uh, you know, in this time, uh, because 1946 is all about sending all the little women back home. They shouldn't be Rosie the Riveters. They need to give the jobs back to men. And so um, in in Hope, I I, I was almost, I wish that he'd been brave enough to say, well, hawk that radio and, you know, sell the $20 radio I'm sending you and do something with it, but um, uh. that's it. It did seem stream of consciousness. The other thing that struck me is I'm going to go to Washington and talk to Harry Truman, talk about celebrity on a stick. You know, I mean, uh, you know, so he can be so humble, you're a humble, obedient servant, but then, hi, I'm a 35 year old guy and I'm just going to go to talk to Harry Truman because I just do. So
1: Right. For no reason too, because he says this isn't going to work at all. I'm just going to yeah, go to DC yeah talk to Truman and Truman's going to be like, mm, sorry yeah. guy, you know? So yeah. like, it's a, it's a sort of wasted trip to DC that he can just do yeah. because, but, you know, but,
3: but you know, with just such assumptions, that, of course, Harry will see me. His door is always open to me because I'm worse than well. So <laughs> yeah. I get it. He's 35 years old. So.
1: And does nothing but make fun of Truman. I mean, the other thing is like the fact that he can still get this meet, this meeting after sort of emasculating Truman two episodes yeah. ago, it's yeah, shocking.
3: Right
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah.
3: Do, do, do you, Vincent, do we know did the meeting take place? He actually did go to... I a-
1: believe it did. I, I looked through some things. I couldn't find exactly what... Um, I couldn't find any definitive evidence which said this happened. There were some mm-hmm. other loose suggestions that it was going to happen, so I'm not sure. I mean, clearly nothing came of it, really. Um, I mean, OPA has a compli- an even more complicated history after this point, but um, yeah, nothing came of it if it did happen.
2: Well, and I can see Truman's people saying, look, this guy's thrashing on you and, and he's kind of listened to by a lot of people. And we know that once you stroke his ego some and talk to Orson, usually he becomes where he cares about you and will defend you more and things. So maybe you meeting with him, even if he doesn't get anything out of it other than uh, getting to know you, maybe he'll he'll lighten up a little bit. And uh, that, that could have been why they went ahead and arranged it as well. The other piece i was going to mention really quick was just the the letter itself we've talked about letters and whether they're real or not real or anything this one feels totally real because i cannot see him writing a letter that kind of dumbfounds him as to what to say and what to do about the letter um essentially he's reading this thing going okay you're in serious trouble here and and you can't figure out the way out and i don't know how to help you other than send you this stupid little radio and uh, like you say, Kathy, I almost expected him to say, instead of the radio, and Lou the radio, we're gonna send you the same yeah. amount of money the radio costs, and then you can buy a radio if you want or use it for other things. I, I don't know, I- it just seemed awkward. Um, Terry, your thoughts?
4: Well, uh, you're all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, tell you cool. why. I- I'll tell you why after this important plug for <laughs> Imaginary Theater. Uh... Though our last episode does deal with time travel, and it's I've discovered that far more people than I realized love that genre, and I love love that genre. And listening to these Orson Welles commentaries to me is a little bit like time travel. We get to go back to that era, look at the world, knowing what we know now, and then project forward what's going to happen. And we know what's going to happen because it already happened. We we know the history since nineteen forty six. And what Orson Welles proposed in this commentary was not nothing. He said, people, go on strike. Don't buy stuff. You know, let's not let these rich, powerful politicians, greedy people in Washington take away our Office of uh, Price Administration. We need to control prices. Uh, Otherwise, there'll be inflation. And it turned out he was right, of course, because there was, of course, this was an era of strikes and shortages. And and what I always love is seeing how history repeats itself. What's going on today? All these years later, We've got yeah. shortages. We have uh, uh, unfairness. We have um, labor unrest. We have businesses uh, continuing to try to take advantage in many cases of, of uh, working people, and we have celebrity involvement in politics uh, yes of course Orson Wells could have a a meeting with Harry Truman in much the same way that a lot of famous people today can meet with the president or or other um, you know governors and, and other politicians so more things change the more they stay the same yes and was Orson Wells uh, this young upstart yes but was he famous yes and could he get away yes. with stuff absolutely so I didn't find I didn't find any of this, surprising nor did I find it surprising that eventually uh, Lear pulls its sponsorship and, and ABC pulls the plug on these commentaries because it was too controversial the very thing that today by contrast we seem to like in um, in media eventually led to uh, Wells undoing and maybe as we've talked about in the past it was also, the fact that he could be kind of difficult to work with at times. Right. But in this particular instance, it was because the heat got too hot, even for Harry Truman and even for ABC and even for the Lear radio company. And we will see in the coming weeks and months uh, that he'll continue pushing the limits and eventually lose his platform.
2: All right. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right with, with, all of that. And uh, I'm glad you pointed it out because I was going to, I was hoping you would, because I was like, okay, we got to talk about the the, the the strikes and him saying that, you know, they need to stand up for themselves and boycott and the whole thing. I, I thought that was interesting. And the ties to today.
3: And, so. and, and yet, you know, how ironic if he's calling for a consumer boycott and then this poor letter writer, they don't have enough money. You know, I mean, yeah. they're already at their end. There is nothing, you know, left in the cupboard at home for for them to, to sustain a consumer strike. So uh, right yeah has a clue of what to do. So
1: Right. Rhetorically, the letter works brilliantly. I mean, I do think, ter- or, um, Kathy, you're right about um, Wells having a platform for female writers. I also, though, wonder, he uses the letters often rhetorically, and they're often like to paint a very um, sympathetic or sorrowful picture. And so I do wonder if he's sort of playing on uh, gender stereotypes here a little bit. I mean that's a problematic assumption saying that the letters are going to skew masculine or feminine, but assuming that for a moment, I mean, her letter is definitely like my husband is trying, you know, he can't get work. And then he's sort of using that to say like, well, if he can't even uh, barely pay the bills right now, what happens when there's, um, you know, there's higher prices. The other thing to Terry's point, I I think we need to remember how controversial calling for a strike would be. I know we we need to uh, go quickly here, but, you know, the manufacturers uh, blamed strikes in part for these high prices. And so for Wells to say, you need to do this, this is the only way, is sort of saying that, wow, we're going to make the problem worse potentially. And in fact, people do sort of strike after this, and it kind of works, although Congress doesn't quite... Um, uh, bring OPA back to its former strength. And so it, it sort of is a, uh, a partial plan, a partial fix that doesn't end up working. But Wells ends up being cor- very correct here. And we, we sometimes criticize Wells' as sort of economic theory. Um, and he's right inflation goes up, people strike, there, it comes back, sort of works for a little
2: bit, and then it gets, you know, kiboshed again. But hundred percent. Well, that is a great place for us to stop because luckily we can continue this conversation next week as Orson continues to, to, uh, have commentaries, but I love our commentaries for all the shows. And I thank you all for being here and I hope you all enjoy this commentary which is really nice, uh, really clear at the beginning of it. And then towards the end, it starts getting a little less clear, but it's still very listenable. Um, but you just never know what we're going to get for sound quality on these things. We, we get what we get it. We're just so glad we have them at all. And uh, like Terry says, it's great to hear the reflections of how, how it uh, echoes to it into today and the things that are going on today. So uh, again, thanks and enjoy everybody. See you next week.
0: Hello, this is Orson. Well speaking next week, marks the end of June next week, marks the end of the OPA In the better restaurants and hotels, the ghouls are celebrating already. For the profiteers, the battle's won. Right now, Sunday, June 23rd, to all practical intents, to all working purposes, the OPA is dead. The boom is on, friends. Just watch your dollar dwindle. And meanwhile, meanwhile, somebody is buying another senator another drink. Somebody's getting a congressman's wife some new nylons. One more week and the lid goes right off. One more week and the profits start piling in for the profiteers. All the profits they can hide from the tax collector. I mean all the profits they can bury in the backyard. Now I'm going down to Washington with some friends tomorrow to talk to the president about it. It says here in my crystal ball that the president is going to tell us that he, the president, hasn't enough support to do anything. We then will tell Mr. Truman that the people are behind the O.P.A., that that's where we would like to see Mr. Truman behind the O.P.A., helping to push. But probably we'll just be making conversation. Mr. Truman is more pushed against than pushing. That thing his shoulder's leaning on ain't no grindstone, it's the eight ball. My little magic crystal shows some handshaking all around a dreary trip back to New York. Goodbye, Mr. President. Goodbye is right. I hope not, but goodbye. Some ugly stories are in circulation, and hear there's a deal cooking, a deal to keep price control on some food, on some rents, on some clothing, a deal to cut the anchor chains off everything else. I don't need a crystal ball, and you don't need a radio commentator to tell what that means. Before this, I've asked you to write letters to your congressman about the OPA, and you wrote the letters. I asked you to send telegrams. You sent the telegrams. As we stand today together a helpless, hapless herd of taxpayers on the teetering brink of inflation, there's only one thing left to ask for. I ask you to go on strike. That's right, that's what I said. Let's go on strike. Let's walk out on higher prices and stay out until they stay down. We, the consumers of this country, are being played for suckers. Maybe we are suckers. Ordained suckers. By destiny and by nature, stuck with suckerdom. But like the man said, men sometimes are masters of their fate. The gold bricks aren't all bought up by all the people all the time. Even here in the darkness of the sheep run, we show a fitful flash of shrewdness. Those with eyes to see could spell out the words written in the sky over all those empty seats at the Yankee Stadium last Wednesday night. And these were the words. Not all of us are boobs. Not all of us are boobs. So... Let's not pay a nickel more than anything is worth. Let's not spend a dime, a thin dime, a very thin dime. We don't have to spend. Not all of us are boobs, but the food and clothes and lots and lots of fancy new products we'd like to buy are hid away from us, hoarded up in the hope of higher prices after the 1st of July. That stuff's going on the market sooner or later, and if the price zoom doesn't come off, it'll be sooner. Not all of us are boobs, but pretty soon it won't be easy to prove it. And what can we do before then? We the people, we the consumers, we can go out on strike. If the OPA goes off, how about buying absolutely nothing from the week of July 1st to July 7th? How about it? How does that sound? I'm sure it sounds crazy. But what could be crazier, if you please, than sitting back and letting a greedy ring of get-rich-quick experts pump the buying power out of your paycheck? Suppose there was a flood or a fire, some such disaster, and your town was cut off from food. Still, somehow, for a while anyway, you could feed your family. Well, inflation's a disaster, the real thing. It's a national calamity. Why don't we treat it like one, acting quickly and together? Why don't we just plain put our foot down? Why don't we stop buying everything for a week? The retailers won't like it, but they're not who we're shooting at. We're after the wholesalers. Let the wholesalers hear from the consumers. Something audible, something would threaten it. Then they'll start selling the stuff, and at decent prices, and in decent quantity. But of course, of course we consumers won't go on strike because we consumers aren't organized. And of course, if we were organized, we wouldn't have to strike. The truth has a dark and ugly face, and there's no point in masking it or trying to. Tomorrow, I'll pay the president that visit. And I'm afraid that after July 1st, we'd better all get ready to start paying for everything through the nose. Here's a letter. Dear Mr. Wells, it's now three weeks since my husband was laid off work at the button factory where he was employed for a month. While he was there, he wasn't exactly grateful for the long hours of hard physical labor without any breaks or rest periods. But now, after fruitless searching for another job, he realizes how fortunate he was to make $40 a week. He's a natural-born salesman, but unable for the first time in his life to sell himself into any kind of a job that pays a living wage. $30 is the top salary paid to returning war veterans regardless of the size of their families. Although he's a skilled sheet metal worker, when he entered the army, he's now told that his five years of service for his country set him back into the apprentice class in that trade, Mr. Wells. What are we going to do? The tragedy of our situation is that we're only one of thousands of veterans' families forced into such poverty. In this land of plenty, with its stirring productions, its new explorations in the fields of science... We can afford none of the new refrigerators or other marvels that will be rolling off the assembly lines within the next few years. We can't even afford shoes for our shoeless feet. Now the lid is blowing off the OPA with prices in milk and butter and meat rising all the time. The big man with all his power to wage strike wars against the worker to paint the family man black for wanting a living wage is taking the food out of the mouth of our very small baby to be born within the next two weeks. Sincerely yours, Mrs. Ernest Schenk. That's a letter I got in the mail the other day. We've made it a custom on this program to read letters, and for the letters we use, we send a radio. So the lady who wrote the letter you just heard gets a radio. It's a very nice radio. I very much hope that what she hears on it in these next months will bring her happiness and encouragement. But she didn't write that letter to get a radio. I'm afraid, I'm terribly afraid, that she wrote for advice... Mr. Welsh, she says, what are we to do? And I'm supposed to answer. There's a baby coming in two weeks. Her husband's been laid off work. His only chance is for less pay, and prices are going up. They're going way up. Mr. Welsh, she says, what are we going to do? Well, last night, after the show, I put her letter in my pocket. And I went out on the town, it being Saturday night, and I sat at Toots's and at the store club for a while, and at El Morocco, I didn't get any younger, I didn't get any wiser. At dawn, I walked up to the plaza and watched the water and the fountain and the pigeons and the grass, alas, and tried to find a thought for the new day. But no thoughts came and no answers, no answers for a woman whose veteran husband needs a better job, who's afraid of what it's going to cost to feed her little baby. The last horse-drawn cabs in New York wait by the plaza these early summer nights till it's time for honest men to go to work. Lovers take the half-hour cruise around the park as late as sun up. There's the occasional lonesome single like myself. I'm comforted by riding the park. When I'm in New York, I charter a carriage in all seasons and I've made the half-hour cruise in many moods. Never mind about my mood this morning. Consider the condition of my cabby. He being the dean of the drivers on the night shift, a worthy old warrior who last night lost a battle with a bottle. Surely his second. We'll call him Mike Anonymous. Well, Mike started off with me into the morning mists, carrying his own private fog along with him as he drove. For a time, I watched his jaunty silhouette under the topper and noted the sharp vapors of the essence of juniper. Then my attention wavered. It shouldn't have, for so did Mike's. The next thing we knew, we were climbing across a steep swatch of grass on our way to the statue of Daniel Webster. Liberty and union, said Mike, waking from a deep dream of peace and reading the inscription on the pedestal, now and forever, one and inseparable. Then all three of us looked up into the grim, graven features of the senator, all three of us being Mike, the horse, and me. We'd come close to a crack-up, but I was the more exquisitely startled because in that pallid light, and with a sick moon behind, fainting away into the morning... Mr. Webster's monument shocked back into memory an old, old, bad dream. I had the dream often as a child. It concerned bronze statues, weathered green statesmen and poets collected in imagination from all the parks I visited most of the countries of the world, solemn and sizable figures given in the dream to stepping down from their pedestals at sight of me and giving chase. I don't want to know how many sweaty, teeth-grinding nights I spent fleeing from all that distinguished statuary. I can still hear their metal footsteps tolling on the cobblestones of the nightmare. Dr. Freud and old Madge's gypsy dream book can explain this unpleasantness however they may. I don't care what it means, and I'd hoped it was gone with the growing pains and the collie wobbles. But this morning, just as we charged full tilt into one of the real and original ogres, There was a giddy moment when I thought maybe the nightmare was prescience, And, as a wreck seemed sure, the dread all hot and cold came over me that the old, old chase was over. Mr. Webster had caught me at last. But I was too quick for him. After much painful maneuverings, Mike and the horse and I regained the road and resumed our half-hour's cruise through Central Park. My own nightmare then put me into mind of Mr. Cannon's I mean Mr. Jimmy Cannon, the sports writer, who this week... This week had a nightmare all over the front page of the New York Post. It was a newspaper story, but it read like Norman Corwin narration... Mr. Cannon was canonized for it in the New Republic. That highbrow weekly in an eager flush of appreciation is reprinting the piece in full as a striking sample of our current literature. Also, the New York Post has raised the author's salary and launched him on the syndicate. Now, the piece in question was a description of the Louis Kahn fight. And the Louis Kahn fight wasn't much of a fight, but it was an event, an event with some sort of a beginning and a quite definite conclusion. And Well, here's how Jimmy Cannon, the sports writer, covered it in the only newspaper story on the front page of his paper. <clears throat> I quote... Once dreaming with morphine after an operation, I believed the night climbed through the window of my room like a second-story worker. I thought the night had forsaken the world and shaped like a fat man, walked through my face and up into my head, unquote. Mr. Cannon goes on like this for two full and full-blown paragraphs before we are informed that Mr. Lewis knocked out Mr. Kahn in the eighth, or as Jimmy put it, when Kahn fell off the rim of the conscious and crumpled into the dark privacy of the night he alone possessed. Mr. Cannon goes on like that for hundreds and hundreds of words. The editor, it seems, told Mr. Cannon to write just as much as he wanted. He did. Since his medium is the Daily Press, you might say it was too much and too soon. Over on page 60, he gets really good, though, and I mean really good, and I'm not being sarcastic. That's over on page 60. My kick with Jimmy Cannon has to do with page one, since I'm an ex-New York Post columnist myself. He can call it sour grapes if he wants to, but I just can't go for that guff about the night... Crawling into Jimmy Cannon's brain, not on page one. Somebody should take the purple ribbon out of Jimmy's typewriter. That boozy mist that does beyond the bogism is, for my dough, unworthy of page one. And what's more serious, it's unworthy of Jimmy Cannon. Because Jimmy Cannon is one of the best writers in America today. He has a keen, affectionate, and creative ear. He has the language ear. And that's a rare and precious gift. Damon Runyon has it. Ring Lardner had it. Sports writers they were, too. Read Jimmy Cannon, you'll see what I mean. If they don't run Jimmy Cannon in your newspaper, ask for him. You'll be glad you did. Last Monday, he wrote a column about Joe Lewis. And in it, he said just this line in a great column. Joe Lewis is a credit to his race. Naturally, I mean the human race. A man who can write a piece like that one shouldn't be bothering us with bad dreams about the night walking through his face like a fat man... Even if that's a good way to write a news story about a boxing match, what kind of a bad dream is it? Worst bad dream I can think of is just fighting one round with Joe Lewis. Well, by the time these thoughts had found such organization as I've been able to give them this morning, the sun was up and we were coming at full trot back to the plaza. The day was already seeping in under my eyelids like a thin spinster with three eyes, like Swifty Morgan with a satchel full of snappy cravats coming in out of the rain. And while all this was going on, The letter from the lady whose veteran husband's paycheck isn't going to be enough for the baby they're going to have next week was burning a hole in my pocket. That's just what it was doing, burning a hole in my pocket. If Jimmy Cannon wants to find another fresher phrase for it, he can have it And the job of answering that letter. With my blessings. Now it's time to say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week, same time, same station. Till then I remain, as always, obediently yours.